Well, we are certainly glad to see all of you this morning. Glad that you are here with us. I know you have a Bible with you or one close by. There is one on every pew next to the hymn books, the black book. That, uh, if you need one and would like to follow along, we always encourage you to do that. We're continuing, of course, our study in the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark will be back in chapter 10 again uh, on this week. Throughout my life, I have attended more funerals than I can possibly count. I have been in the ministry as a pastor now for over 40 years, and nearly all of those years, almost all of those years, 38 and a half of them right here, uh, during that time I I have officiated at dozens of funerals, in addition to those that I have attended as an observer or a mourner. I have watched on television a number of state funerals, as they're often called, of some famous political leader, uh, several presidents, the Queen of England. Some of those funerals are filled with elaborate ceremony and tradition and military music and an enormous amount of, of formal proceedings lasting for hours and hours. Other funerals of ordinary folks are quiet and simple, lasting uh, just maybe an hour or less. But in every single case... One thing remains the same. Death is still death. Loss is still loss. Grief is still grief. Sorrow is still sorrow. And it is inevitable. The one inescapable statistic of life is that one out of one dies. It doesn't matter how famous you are, how wealthy you are, or how much political power you have. One out of one still dies. God created us as relational people, and when those relationships are lost, we, we feel the pain, we sense the, empty, the, the emptiness, we try to make adjustments to deal with the loss and the inability to communicate with that person. That's probably one of the toughest things uh, that I have experienced and others have as well, just the inability to communicate with the person who is gone. Sorrow can be ongoing for quite some time. And I am, I'm not sure that the grieving process really ever ends. It just adjusts. Uh, the, the sharpness of the pain does tend to lessen over time, but the loss is never really forgotten. And I must say that one of the most heart-rending funerals you could ever attend is the funeral of a child. Uh, there is a special tenderness, a special pain, a unique grief that goes with the loss of a child. And I have over the years officiated at funerals for people in virtually every decade of life. Uh, None are easy, as I said a moment ago, death is still death and loss is still loss and grief is still grief and sorrow is still sorrow. But funerals for little ones are certainly some of the hardest. The most common question in the hearts of people during those times is, where is my little one? A very honest and sincere question, and thankfully, in the grace of God, it is a question that I believe is answered in our text today. Uh, This same passage, this same incident is recorded in, in Matthew 19 and Luke 18, as well as here in Mark chapter 10. I believe you remember that we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. The little prefix syn, S-Y-N, means together, and of course optic means to see, so synoptic means to see together. 
And so you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of all seeing, uh, seeing together the same kinds of things, the same, sorts of, uh, uh, the same sorts of events from slightly different viewpoints aimed at different first century audiences. And when we put them all together, we get a very rich and full picture of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And when all three synoptic Gospels record the same event, then we can only presume that the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that we get it. And so, and so he gives it to us three times. So let's read this very brief text, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 13, 14, 15, 16, just four verses there. Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. Then they brought little children to him, meaning Jesus, you'll see in the context that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took, up in, he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. There are many people who look at this passage as simply as an indication that Jesus loved children and had fond feelings for them. And that I'm sure certainly is very true, but we believe that also that it is a very important passage that answers the crucial, crucial question of what happens to little children if they die. Throughout the history of the world, Countless millions of children have died in infancy or early childhood, and they continue to do so even in the world today. The advent of antibiotics a hundred years ago greatly reduced the infant mortality rate in developed countries, but based on ancient historical records and the data gathered from archaeology, we can easily assume that tens of millions, if not more, of young children have died before they reached the age of five, and many of those before they reached their first birthday. So where are the souls of all those children who have died. This passage, I believe, answers that question for us. And I think it answers it very, very clearly. Let's, let's unpack the elements of what's going on here. First, Mark calls them little children. He uses the standard Greek word for a little kid. Uh, Matthew uses the same word, but Dr. Luke uses, uh, uh, describes them with a different word. Perhaps because he was a doctor, he used a more technical description. But he uses a word that indicates little ones who are nursing. And in that culture, that would indicate anyone from a newborn to perhaps a three or four year old. So what we see here is the Lord Jesus Christ blessing these little children. And in the New Testament Jewish world, a blessing was not just some cute little phrase that makes you feel good about your kid. It, it was much more serious than that, and, and was a way in which the favor of God was being pronounced on someone. We never see Jesus pronouncing a blessing on anyone who was not in his kingdom. So this is a very unique situation where the Lord Jesus blesses little children. And this was in total opposition 
to the common theology of the day because the majority of the Jewish people, because of the teaching of the Jewish leaders, they were convinced that you had to earn your way to heaven by keeping the law. Well, children couldn't do that. They couldn't do good works. They couldn't do keep the law. They didn't know the difference between good and evil, between righteousness and unrighteousness. And so they were not even part of the discussion regarding the kingdom of God. And so this would be a, a little mind-blowing to those who were watching that Jesus would say that the kingdom of God is full of little children because they were thinking these little kids can't do anything to earn it. How can they get in the kingdom? So it becomes for us a very powerful illustration again that salvation is by grace, not by works. Jesus says the kingdom of God is full of nursing little children like these. At the same time, it's also a rebuke of self-righteous law-keeping. Because unless you come to the kingdom as a little child, Jesus said in verse 15, unless you come there as a little child, weak and helpless and dependent with absolute trust, he says you can't enter the kingdom. Now, if I grabbed you and tried to throw you up in the air, I'm sure I'd have a fight on my hands because you don't trust me to do that. I don't blame you. If you take a little one and you throw them up in the air, they laugh. They don't have a care in the world. Many of you know that I have a brother who's 16 years younger than me. He was born the summer between my sophomore and junior year in high school. I actually drove my mother to the doctor the day she found out she was pregnant. That was an interesting experience. When my brother was little, I used to grab him by the ankles and I would swing him back and forth, upside down, had him by the ankles, swing him back and forth, and I'd heave him all the way across the living room and land on the couch. He was howling with joy and laughter the whole time, and after I would do that, he would say, do it again. Absolute trust, see, that I would not hurt him. Visiting with my little grandsons in Colorado, they wanted me to, to pretend I was a dinosaur chasing them through the house. And I'd grab them and roar and I'd throw them over onto the couch. And, and we did that over and over and over again until I was so winded that I collapsed on the couch. And the older grandson says to his little brother, it's okay, T-Rex is tired. <laughs> I thought that's the understatement of the year. Yeah, T-Rex is tired. But just that thought of absolute trust. You can pick up a little kid and you can just shift, throw them through the air. and they, they land on the couch and don't get hurt. They'll come back and do it again. And Jesus says, if you don't come to me like a helpless, weak, dependent little kid with absolute trust, you can't get into the kingdom. So we've got two things going on in this passage. One, the Lord reminds us of a principle that is repeated several times in the New Testament, that the way you enter the kingdom of God is with childlike faith. But beyond that, not only do true believers come as children, but children themselves have a, have a special place in the kingdom. Babies and toddlers serve as a powerful illustration of those who enter the kingdom and receive its blessings because they can do nothing to earn it. They can do nothing to be worthy of it. That's kind of an overview of the text. So let's go just a little bit deeper now. Verse 13 says that they brought their little ones to Jesus so he could touch them. Matthew adds, pray 
that he could put his hands on them and pray. So what was this about? It was a prayer that God would show favor to them. Uh, The Jewish elders used to say that when you pray for your child, pray this. He said that the child would be famous in the law, meaning that they would know it and obey it. That they would be faithful in marriage and that they would be abundant in good works. I thought those, that, that's a great ancient prayer. Uh, pray for your child that, that they would know and obey God's word. That they would be faithful in marriage. That they would be abundant in good works. And the father would lay his hands on the child's head. The elders of the synagogue would come together. They would do the same. And they would come and bless the child. And they would pray these things for the child. Other Jewish writings tell us that it was a very common thing for parents to bring their little children to be blessed by the elders of the synagogue. And there was even a special day set aside for this, the day before the Day of Atonement, which is in the fall. We call it Yom Kippur. It's, it's the, the Day of Atonement it comes in the fall. And, and the day before that, uh, parents of little children would bring all their children to the synagogue to be blessed by the elders of the synagogue. So bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them and pray for them, that's, that's what's going on here. Praying that God would pour out his favor on this child, which would lead that child to become famous in the law and faithful in marriage and filled with godly actions. That's exactly what's going on here. We've spoken about this before, but, but they wanted Jesus to touch their children. Jesus did so many things with a touch. He healed with a touch. Hundreds of times, thousands of times. He touched people all of the time, which is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes would never do. They wouldn't wouldn't touch people because they thought if they did, they would be defiled. So here was Jesus, this well-known rabbi who would touch people and would allow himself to be touched. He touched sick people. He touched dying people. He touched dead people. He he even touched people with leprosy. And here we see him wrapping these little ones up in his arms. That's what verse 16 means when it says he took them up in his arms. It's a big, long Greek verb. It means he picked them up and he just grabbed big handfuls of kids and hugged them all. Wrapped these little ones up in his arms, touching them and praying for him. But in typical fashion at this point in his ministry... The disciples didn't get it. We've seen them before trying to run off the people who come to Jesus. But our text says that they rebuked those who were bringing the little children to Jesus. That's a very strong word in the original language there in verse, in verse uh, 13. It says the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Very, very strong word. It's the same word used when Jesus was rebuking demon spirits. Or when Jesus stood up in the boat and rebuked the wind in those Sea of Galilee storms. So the disciples are apparently really, really giving it to these parents. We might say they are chewing them out and running them off. And the response of the Lord Jesus is just as intense. Not the same verb, but a very strong verb. Greatly displeased, it says in our English Bibles. He was greatly displeased. That means, uh, that, that Greek verb means he was moved with indignation. He was, he was totally irritated. He, he, was, he was physically vexed and, and irritated. <clears throat> well, we are often tempted to read this verse. I've heard people quote it. Excuse me just a moment. I'll grab another drink here. We're often tempted to read this, and I've heard people quote it this way, like, like Jesus is saying, Let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. 
But when you look at the verbs and here in the, in the, in the original text, I, I think it's probably more like, Hey, let these little kids come to me and stop running them off. Don't you know that the kingdom of God is filled with people like this? And if you don't have the same attitude toward me as these little guys, you're not getting into the kingdom either. Based on that verb, that's probably a little more realistic understanding of this exchange between Jesus and his disciples. So Luke says then that Jesus called them to him, meaning he called the parents to come to him and bring the little ones. Now there, there are no qualifiers here. There are no conditions here. This is very significant. Nothing is said about the parents' faith. Nothing, nothing is said about a covenant as if there was some kind of family covenant. Nothing is said about baptism. Nothing is said about circumcision. Nothing is said about any rite, any ritual, any parental commitment. He just says the kingdom of God is made up of little ones like this. And if the Lord Jesus was ever going to teach infant baptism, if he ever was, this would have been the perfect place. All he would have to do is say, these children will possess the kingdom if you'll let me put a few drops of water on their heads. But that's not what he says. This was his golden opportunity, but he said nothing, and neither does anybody else in the Bible say anything about infant baptism. He doesn't commend the parents' faith. He doesn't talk about the toddler's faith, which of course is impossible for them. They're not even capable of exercising it. He simply says, babies belong in the kingdom, and the kingdom belongs to them. Now you might be asking in your mind at this point, okay, pastor, what are we actually talking about here? What we're saying is that babies or toddlers or this newer idiom that I hear my daughters using, littles. I like it. It's a cute little idiom. Littles. Before they reach a point in time when before God they become accountable for believing or not believing, before they reach that time, they are under special divine care. That's exactly what I'm saying. If they die before they reach a point of understanding, before they reach a point of comprehending of sin and right and wrong and personal responsibility, they are under God's care. Now, when is that time? It's going to be different for every child. It's not a particular birthday, as many have theorized over the years. It'll be different from every child. In fact, uh, many years ago, when our, when our kids were little, we were driving through Valier, and the, uh, the Kingdom Hall was still active there, and we drove, we're, we're coming back into town, and, 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 our, and our oldest daughter said, what's that church, Dad? I said, well, it's not really a church. I said, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And she said, they don't? Well, then who do they trust? She was five when she said that. She understood at the age of five. If Jesus isn't the Son of God, who do they trust? But it's going to be different for every kid. Now, we're not saying the children, that our children are not born sinners. They are. We could give you many scriptures that teach exactly that. Some people teach that children are born morally neutral, that they are not really sinners and they're not really holy. They're not really anything until they reach an age when they're morally accountable. The Bible does not teach that. 
Psalm 51 teaches that the curse of sin is on us the moment we are conceived in our mother's wombs. And we could give you many more scriptures that teach that we are all sinners from the moment we are conceived. I'm sure you could, a number of you can quote some of those. What we are saying is that it is our conviction that God holds little ones in the state of grace until they reach an age in which they have an understanding of right and wrong. That God extends His grace to those who are incapable of believing. This would include little children, as well as those due to some mental handicap have minds like little children and are incapable of believing. Now, we won't turn to all of these passages for the sake of time, but you're more than welcome to look them up and check them out. I know that a number of you like to take notes and write these down. You can write these passages down. You can, you can look them up. We won't take it. would take us another 20, 30 minutes to look them all up and read the context. Now, when you, I'm just going to give you the one verse, and if you want to read them sometime, you can read the context, all the verses around them, so you see what's going on. The first one says, Deuteronomy 1.39. Deuteronomy 1.39, God, speaking through Moses to the children of Israel, he refers to their little ones, their children, as having no knowledge of good and evil. Jeremiah 19.4, God is rebuking the leaders of Israel for building altars to Baal and offering their little children as sacrifices. They were burning them alive on these altars. I mean, it's a horrifying thought, but that was going on in ancient Israel, actually going on all over the ancient world. People took their little babies and they burned them alive to false gods. God is rebuking the leaders of Israel in Jeremiah 19 for building these altars to Baal and offering their little children as sacrifices. And God says this in Jeremiah 19.4, You have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Ezekiel 16.21 God is again condemning the people of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 16 for offering their children as sacrifices. He said in fact in Ezekiel 16 in verse 1 he said he wanted Ezekiel to cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Then in verse 21, he talks about this event, and he says, You have slaughtered my children. The New King James says the word slain, but the, the, the Hebrew word uh, to, to kill or to slay there means to slaughter, to bleed them out and cut them up like an animal sacrifice. Again, an, ab, an absolutely, obviously horrifying thought, which is why God called it an abomination, but God is saying to the children of Israel there in Ezekiel 16, 21, you are slaughtering my children as though the children belonged to him. And they did. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, the very last verse in Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah being, at least, at least you know the part about being, being swallowed by this great fish. And uh, because he didn't want to go preach to Nineveh, he finally goes and he preaches to Nineveh. But then when Nineveh repents, he gets mad about it. And he's sitting up on this hill pouting because God, God's forgiving these people of, of Nineveh and he wants, them to be, he wants them to be destroyed. And God says in response to that, he's rebuking Jonah for his lack of compassion on Nineveh. And he says in Jonah 4.11, Should I not pity Nineveh? where there are 120,000 who do not know their right hand from their left. God spared Nineveh, in part, because of the little children who were there, who did not know their right hand from their left. 
Most of you know the story of King David's adultery with Bathsheba, a very well-known event in Old Testament history. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, the story of, of, of most of that. The verses, if you want to look them up, verse 22 and 23. But uh, the, the prophet Nathan, after David's sin with Bathsheba, commits adultery, has her husband murdered in battle. The prophet Nathan comes to David, confronts him about his sin. David repents. God forgives him, but says, your child, your baby, will die. You have caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, and your child is going to die. David fasts and he prays for seven days, and then the baby dies. Then David rises up, he washes himself, he changes his clothes, he goes into the house of the Lord to worship. And his servants ask him, when he asks them to bring him food, his servants ask him, well, why are you doing this, O Lord the King? You fast and pray when the baby's sick, then you rise and eat when he dies. Why, why are you doing that? And David says beautiful thoughts there in 2 Samuel 12, verse 22 and 23. He says, while the child was alive, I prayed that God would be gracious to me and let him live. Now that he is gone, I cannot bring him back. And this is the great phrase. He says, I will go to him but he cannot return to me. Now there are some commentators who say that David is just saying that, that he's going to go to the grave with his infant son. doesn't make a bit of sense to me. That would not be a comfort. And David is obviously comforted with this thought. He's not just saying, well, he died one day, I'm going to die, I guess, okay. No, 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 no. He said, he, said, he can't come back to me, but I'm going to go to him. David knew exactly where his eternity would be spent. And he had every confidence that he would see his infant son when he got there. Now you contrast that with David's response to Absalom's death in chapters 18 and 19. His sneaky, underhanded, rebellious son who had murdered one of his brothers and then wanted to kill David and take over the kingdom. He, he loses his, his coup to take over the kingdom. He gets killed by Joab, the commander of David's army, and David will not be consoled. You can read it. It's in chapter 18 and 19, that whole story. David's crying out, Oh, Absalom! Oh, Absalom! My son Absalom! Oh, my son Absalom! I wish I had died instead of Absalom! Oh, Absalom! On and on and on and on until finally Joab Joab comes to him and says, David, you have got to stop this. Absalom was going to kill you and take the kingdom. And all these men out here died for you in battle trying to save the kingdom for you. Stop doing this for Absalom. Why was David doing that? He had no thought he was going to see Absalom again. But when his baby son, who dies at one week old, David says, I will go to him. David knew where his eternity would be spent, and he had every confidence that he would see his infant son when he got there. You know, it is a, it is a wonderful, fantastic, overwhelming, spectacular, blessed Bible truth that salvation is by grace alone. And one of the greatest illustrations of that is the salvation of a child who dies before they are capable of believing or rejecting the gospel. I am totally convinced that they are safe in the arms of our Savior. So Jesus says, don't forbid these parents from bringing their little ones to me. The kingdom of God is full of these little ones. 
And if you don't come to me like a little one comes, weak and helpless and dependent with absolute trust, you're not getting into the kingdom either. Let me close with just a couple of brief thoughts. First, just imagine the tens of millions of little ones who have died in the history of the world through illness, disease, accidents, miscarriage, abortion. This Sanctity of Life Sunday, you know, there's almost 70 million little ones who have died through abortion in the last 50 years in this country. That's double the population of Canada. Where are all those babies? I believe they're safe in the arms of Jesus. But you imagine the tens of millions of little ones who have died in the history of the world through illness and disease and miscarriage and abortion, etc. And then imagine the Apostle John in the book of Revelation seeing this glimpse of heaven and seeing the massive group of people larger than anyone could even count from every tribe and language and nation. And, and we, we can guess where a bunch of them came from. They died as babies. Second thought. We are the primary missionaries in the lives of our children. Most of our children are going to reach an age where they are capable of believing. Some will not, but most of our children are going to reach an age where they're capable of believing. So teach them the gospel. Lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Disciple them in the things of God. We are the primary missionaries in the lives of our children and grandchildren. We can extend that out to our nieces and nephews and all the, peop all the young people we know. And then third thought. We all have the, the capacity to believe or reject the gospel. No babies in here this morning with me. They're all out in the other classes. We all have the capacity to believe or reject the gospel. Are you absolutely certain for solid Bible reasons that you are in Christ? If not, make sure today, come to the Lord Jesus like a little person with absolute trust in Him and He will receive you. Do not forbid the little children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Let's pray. Father, we pray that these thoughts will be a comfort. We all know little ones who have died. I have personally officiated the funeral of a number of little people who have passed away. And know personally many people who have lost little ones. Lord, we rejoice in this confidence that we believe is rooted in the scripture. That they are safe in the arms of our Savior this day. And Lord, we pray for our children, our young people who have reached an age that they understand the gospel. They do have the capacity to believe. They do have the capacity to reject Lord, I pray that we will teach them the gospel, that we will disciple them in the things of God, that we will do everything within our power to reach them for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray the same for our many friends and loved ones who so desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be the kind of testimony that we need to be. 
May we find comfort in your word this day, and may it motivate us to preach the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.